This is the ACR 22 Daily Podcast Review featuring the Room Now faculty as they present to you their favorite abstracts and presentations from the meeting. Enjoy. Hey, I'm Jack Cush. I'm here at ACR 22 from the convention floor right near the ACR booth and a number of big companies, so there's a lot of activity around us. Um, people stopping by to say hello. I'm talking today, talk today at a session called Advancing Telehealth and Rheumatology. I'm part of a grant and a six-member panel where we gave a one-hour presentation on why rheumatologists should be involved in telehealth. As you know, telehealth took off during the pandemic. Most of you knew nothing about it, yet overnight you became zoomatologists and became expert at telehealth. Many of you did that and are still doing that. Many of you did it for a few months until you returned to whatever your old normal was and have abandoned it. And we think that's probably a mistake. It's a mistake from the standpoint of patients and their needs. Not all patients need to be in your office or want to be in your office and can be safely, reliably, and effectively assessed remotely, digitally. Um, so here are a few things. One, patient satisfaction is quite high in telehealth, especially if you look at what the doctors who are doing telehealth um, say, if they say good things about and that's why they're doing it, their patients are fully on board. There are many physicians who are not on board with telehealth for a lot of reasons. The digital divide, loss of personal contact, I'm not good at tech, there's no reason for me to do this, I'm worried about losing money. Guess what? The, doctor, the patients of those doctors often don't really have an opinion and that makes look, telehealth maybe not look so attractive. So, but clearly patients are involved. Secondly, what we know where, uh, how and where telehealth works is in situations where it's outpatient care, of course, um, it's a follow-up visit in a patient who's stable or in remission, or in someone who you need to do monitoring or education or refills and check-ins. Less efficient with new patient visits. I mean, you could use telehealth to screen for new patient visits, but it really, a new patient visit, first visit, needs to be face-to-face -face in clinic. Uh, it can be done by nurses, nurse practitioners, uh, PAs, uh, and rheumatologists. Uh, it's, it can, you can use validated assessment tools that don't need to be done in the clinic. A hack score, a visual analog score, a rapid three score. There's a number of different things that you can do. You're worried about doing a joint exam? Well, look at YouTube and the, the virtual joint exam, I did a video, it's a five minute video, teaches you how to do this, where you basically do a 28 joint count and you, you do basically inspection, contralateral comparison, range of motion. It's good at a TJC, not so good at a SJC or swollen joint count. So again, this is here because everyone has a cell phone. Everyone is potentially connected to you. Major pitfalls here are in not using the video and only doing phone. Telephone medicine is dangerous medicine. Video medicine has the capability of being equivalent um, to your routine care for a subset of your patients. And we're talking mainly about inflammatory arthritis patients, um, gout, osteoarthritis, fibromyalgia, but I've taken care of autoimmune patients, um, myositis and lupus uh, uh, remotely, uh, and I do that by alternating my virtual visit and my face-to-face -face visit. Again, the, the challenge goes out 
for what you're going to do. One of the interesting presentations from Jeff Curtis in this session was on remote uh, monitoring, remote health monitoring of patients. And Jeff laid out the new you know, Medicare rules and CPT codes that allow you to get paid to do remote monitoring. This is a whole payment system that's totally new that I didn't know about. A lot of it's based on using a biosensor, which works in other diseases like, for instance, diabetes, where there's continuous 24-7 um, downloads of information that the physician reviews and then counsels and then bills for. But there's now a pathway that even rheumatologists who don't have an appropriate or best biosensor that can be used in assessing their RA or their lupus or their PSA, but there's still a pathway that you can do remote patient monitoring effectively and get paid for it. So you might want to look at that video online. It's called Advancing Telehealth in Rheumatology. I thought it was a really wonderful session. The audience thought so too, because we had about 30 minutes of, of questions from the audience. So uh, tune in for more great videos from ACR 22. Hi, my name is Akhil Sood, reporting from now at ACR 22. Today I want to talk about Abstract 383, which looks at artificial intelligence and the, the diagnosis of radiographic sacroiliitis in patients with AXPA. Sacroiliitis on x-rays is one of the most important clinical features to diagnose AXPA. We use the modified New York criteria to diagnose sacroiliitis. This method has been the standard both for clinical practice and clinical trials. However, there has been discrepancy between central readers and local readers, and this leads to the question, is there a way to streamline the process of diagnosing sacroiliitis in patients with AXPA? And Abstract 383 aims to address that. They evaluated the performance of a previously developed artificial intelligence algorithm and applied it to a new cohort of patients with AXPA. The performance was compared to expert central readers. And the results were quite impressive. The sensitivity of diagnosing sacroiliitis on imaging was 82%. The specificity was 81% and the agreement between the readers and the algorithm was 82%. So this leads to the question, are computers ready to replace humans? The answer is not quite yet. There's still a lot of work in refining the algorithm and applying it to a larger population. And while the applications of AI are far reaching, it is far from replacing humans. Welcome to Tri-C at Room Now. That's Calabrese and Calabrese on COVID. <laughs> I like that. I'm Len Calabrese. I'm Cassie Calabrese. Right. Hey, so uh, we've got like five minutes here to knock some COVID down for you. Uh, Cassie and I have both been uh, pretty impressed or depressed <laughs> that, you know, COVID is such a fast-flowing river that anything here as an abstract um, is old news and that you know, COVID-19 is an area where we first look for things on preprint servers and on social media um, and then are vetted. Despite that, there's some very high quality science here and some very fascinating work going down. I'm going to talk about one uh, abstract and Cassie's going to talk about another. The first one is abstract 0793, uh, Norm Galis, Andrew Holman and colleagues looking at the frequency of dysautonomia. Uh, measured with a next generation uh, machine which measures heart rate variability, an index of autonomic dysfunction um, in patients with long COVID. 
So Dr. Galis uh, has a long COVID clinic in Florida, and they looked at 40 patients, and uh, after uh, assessing them uh, for dysautonomia, found that 86% of these individuals had decreased parasympathetic tone, and about 50% of them had increased sympathetic tone. The patients themselves uh, were 80% uh, had fatigue, 72% neurocognitive dysfunction, 45% varying degrees of pain, and about one-third had some evidence of anxiety. What does this tell us? Well, it tells us that in many medically unexplained states, ranging from long COVID to ME-CFS to fibromyalgia, we are seeing that um, autonomic dysfunction, um, uh, uh, which contributes to fatigability, um, and is highly correlated with many of these findings, such as neurocognitive dysfunction, um, can be documented. What are the prospects for this? Uh, one, it could turn into a, uh, a reliable biomarker if uh, appropriate controls are done and uh, the study is expanded. But secondly, um, it suggests that um, targeting the autonomic nervous system, which has been of great interest in many diseases, um, may be an enticing area for therapeutics, not only in long COVID, but in attendant diseases. I, I think it's a beginning step, but I found it fascinating. Cassie? That is fascinating. The other kind of hot topic in COVID is pre-exposure prophylaxis with tixagavimab, silgavimab, or Evasheld, which we've all been talking about you know, the new circulating variants, so some bad news for pre-exposure prophylaxis. However, uh, there's a great late-breaking abstract, uh, number eight, by Christopher Podgorski and colleagues at WashU that described their experience of breakthrough COVID in about 160 rheumatic disease patients who received Evasheld. Only a third of those patients were on rituximab, who we are most concerned about giving tixagavimab, silgavimab to, but they looked at a period of breakthrough from January to August 2022, and out of those 160 patients had 24 breakthrough cases, which is 15%. I think on average 100 days after receiving their Evashel dose, and the vast majority of those patients fared well. I think two patients were hospitalized, um, and most of those patients had received their, their first 300, 300 milligram dose. So this is in contrast to our abstract. Um, number 0779 on our Cleveland Clinic Evashel breakthrough experience where we observed a 3% breakthrough through May. But this is all in flux. Um, at this current time, Evashel is only effective against 30% of the circulating virus. Last time, CDC variant tracker was updated. So there are new iterations and generations of pre-exposure prophylaxis monoclonals in the works and we'll stay tuned. So follow Room Now for all the ACR 2020 meeting coverage you need. And uh, final shout out, uh, we have a, um, a commentary in arthritis and rheumatology that is now online about what we view and what we think uh, rheumatologists will be confronted uh, by as the COVID-19 um, uh, pandemic morphs. And that has a lot to do with uh, protecting and treating um, our immunocompromised patients. Please check it out and follow us on Twitter, of course.
Hi, I'm Dr. Katherine Sims reporting live from Philadelphia at ACR 22 and today we're going to talk about the change in reproductive rights and women's health in terms of rheumatology. So I'm going to be reporting on abstract number 0950. This is the impact of COVID-19 on pregnancy outcomes in women with rheumatic disease. So this is from the COVID-19 Global Rheumatology Alliance, which looked at data from 2020 to 2022. So we know that women with rheumatic disease have higher risk for uh, poor pregnancy outcomes, things like preeclampsia, preterm birth, and pregnancy loss. So the question this abstract in this study was, how does COVID-19 infection impact that? And did vaccination status make a difference? So in all of our clinic visits with patients, we're always encouraging them to get uh, mRNA vaccinations and boosters, especially in our pregnant women. So this goes along with flu vaccinations as well. So we want to make sure that our pregnant women are vaccinated against all of these infections in order to mitigate and decrease poor pregnancy outcomes. So in this study specifically, there were 73 women who each had one pregnancy. Lupus and rheumatoid arthritis were the most common rheumatologic diagnoses. 70% of the women's diseases were in remission at the time of COVID infection. But unfortunately, 60% of women were unvaccinated at that time. 90% of the pregnancies ended in a live birth, which is wonderful, but COVID-19 precipitated preterm delivery in 7% of unvaccinated women versus 4% of vaccinated women. So it seems to potentially make a difference in when a baby was delivered and maybe some pregnancy complications with a little bit of an advantage for women who were vaccinated against COVID-19 prior to contracting it. So the bottom line here is that preterm birth was seen more commonly in unvaccinated women versus vaccinated women. So we need to make sure that our pregnant women uh, become vaccinated against uh, COVID-19 to decrease risks of pregnancy, poor pregnancy outcomes. Follow me at, at Dr. Cassie Sims on Twitter for additional coverage of ACR 22. Hi, this is Bella Mehta from Room Now uh, at ACR 2022. Uh, we have with us Candace Feldman from Boston. And um, the abstract that I think we are going to discuss is 1099. Uh, it's empowering patients with lupus uh, through their photographs, a photo voice method to understand social determinants of health. Um, so Candace, very, very interesting abstract. Um, uh, so what did you guys do? Sure. So this was a, a study that we did where we gave our patients who are individuals with lupus who had a medical or psychosocial complexity or both. We gave them cameras, disposable cameras, or we had them use their smartphones and we asked them to take photographs of things in their environments that they felt affected their health. So their neighborhoods, where they got their food, uh, where they accessed their health care. And then we interviewed them once we had their photographs and we had them narrate their, uh, their photographs with us and tell us sort of the story of their lives and their environment and how that affects their lupus, how it affects their lupus care. Uh, and, you know, with really this, try, this attempt to understand the influence of social determinants of health on lupus care. That's very interesting because sometimes you don't get an insight into what's going on in their daily lives. And this was this seems like an attempt to get to that so that we can help them. Um, what were your key findings? Sure. So I think, you know, one of the things that we were interested in is we were trying to understand what are the recurrent themes that, that patients are showing us pictures of. So one thing that uh, one of our wonderful research assistants, Yasuo Yulis, presented today is she showed photographs of stairs and what an obstacle that was for patients. So, and, they, and the descriptions that they gave of how they, for example, got their groceries up the stairs or who in their family supported them to actually literally physically help them up the front stairs of their house. We also learned about aspects of people's neighborhoods 
neighborhoods, whether it was neighborhood safety or the, the neighborhood advocate or the person who kind of looks out for their neighbors. So this idea of neighborhood cohesion and how that impacts people's daily lives. We learned about the centrality of food and barriers to accessing food, whether it was an issue of uh, food insecurity or whether it was more of a um, mobility issue of, you know, I just don't buy food that's on a lower shelf because of my limitation bending down. So we, we learned sort of the features of people's environment that really kind of directly help impact their health and just impact their daily lives. And you've done a lot of work on how um, neighborhoods affect patients. So this is sort of zooming in a little more. Exactly, exactly. So I think, you know, a lot of the other work that, that we've done has been more like a bird's eye view to say like, oh, you live in this neighborhood, you know, what is the average um, median income of houses in that neighborhood, for example, and how does that impact how, you, how individuals living in that neighborhood access care? But this was really a deep dive into the lives of seven patients where we asked them to, you know, tell us everything and then to be the ones to narrate the story, which I think was the, the power of this project compared to some of of the others. True. And I think that with the event of social media, TikTok videos mm -hmm. and Instagram and a lot of patients with lupus who are young who who do access the world like that, um, I see that there is a lot more that can, th that kind of data that we can get uh, from there. Mm -hmm. um, what are your next plans? Are you planning to use more data from open source? stuff like that? Yeah, it's a great idea. You know, it's it's sort of going, in some ways, it's sort of a merge of two worlds, right? In some ways, part of what we're doing is almost like recreating the old school physician who goes to people's homes to provide care, right? And really trying to understand where a person lives and how that affects their health with the kind of new era of, you know, how people interact with social media and smartphones and, you know, how that impacts their health. So I think, you know, so so a big piece of this is sort of how do you almost like merge the two to, to see how both can be left to improve our understanding of people's health and also intervene to improve people's health. So, you know, one of the things that we're doing is we're incorporating this method into a number of other studies. So, for example, uh, we've already incorporated into a study of medication adherence to see where people, for example, keep their medications because that is a sort of piece of, well, if I know where you keep it, it could maybe help give me a clue of how I could remind you to take it. So. That's, that's interesting. That's the way we think of how we as caregivers in our own families do, right? Where do you mm -hmm. keep your pills? That's the first thing you'd ask somebody who's sick in the family. Exactly. So I, I like the new Sherlock Holmes mm -hmm. method, sorry. Um, but with that, um, any last thoughts, anything that you want, to, you want people to take away from this? You know, I think that one of the things that for us was really powerful was, you know, in the past, we as researchers are the one asking the questions and sort of guiding uh, the topics that we want to understand. And the power of this method is that you're giving that microphone and that camera to the patient and they're guiding the mm -hmm. questions. And for me, that was really powerful and really helped redefine the way I think about research. Great. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, so this is the interesting photo voice technique uh, in research now. And um, with that, signing off, this is Bella Mehta at Room Now. And if you can follow me for more content on uh, Twitter, Bella underscore Mehta. Thank you.
Hi, I'm Dr. Janet Pope. I'm on Twitter at Janet Burdope, and I'm tweeting the ACR, hashtag ACR2022 or 22 in Philly, the Convergence Meeting, and I'm here at, at Room Now and I'm having a blast. I wanted to talk about the debate, and I'm, I have a conflict to tell you because I was in the great debate today, and the debate was asking the question, if a patient has pre-RA, symptomatic or not, should they be considered to be treated? And there's a lot going on at this meeting that tells us several things. The first thing is we don't have a standardized definition of pre-RA. The second thing is if you're ACPA positive only, 16% um, or 1 in 6 will become RA over the next year and it goes down over time. The next thing to tell you is that if you have arthralgias in an RA kind of distribution and or ultrasound findings of erosion such as at the base of your toes, fifth MTPs, then you can actually develop rheumatoid arthritis far more quickly because you're further along on the stage. So what this whole debate tells me is that at this point in time we can't prevent RA. We might be able with some drugs in high-risk patients to slow down the progression and there will be an excellent uh, stop RA uh, study that will be presented at this meeting. The bottom line is hydroxychloroquine at this point in time did not delay high-risk patients of getting the onset of rheumatoid arthritis compared to placebo. Whereas the ARIA study has shown that abatacept for six months can delay the onset of RA even 12 months after stopping the drug, so 18 month data. So the word is out what we do with pre-RA for our patients in clinic. Enjoy the meeting, thank you. I'm Dr. Katherine Sims reporting live from Philadelphia at ACR 22 and today we're going to be talking about reproductive health and women's rights. So there's an abstract, a late-breaking abstract, L09 by Dr. Kristen Whipfler from Omaha, Nebraska and they surveyed women and got over 1,700 responses and women reported about 6% that they were having difficulties accessing methotrexate in the post-Roe era which was around mid-June that that Supreme Court decision was made. Now the issue is that women with rheumatoid arthritis, methotrexate is a first-line therapy. So if we're having issues accessing medications, those patients are at risk of having flares, worsening disease, and maybe even progression of disease. So rheumatologists really need to be in tune with patients about their issues with access to medications because we want to make sure that we stay on top of our patient's disease and that it does not become uncontrolled because they cannot access the appropriate medications. Now of that 6% of women who said they had difficulty accessing methotrexate, 63% experienced a delay in even filling the prescription itself. And they underwent excessive questioning by both pharmacists and doctors about their pregnancy status and if pregnancy was an option or a possibility. And so not only do these women have a lack of or an obstacle to obtaining methotrexate, it's also very difficult for them to have some of this personal questioning by someone who's maybe not even their physician. So it's very important that the rheumatology world is uh, involved in these discussions that are happening on a national level. We want to make sure that our patients get the access they need to the medications that are appropriate for their disease. Continue following me at Dr. Cassie Sims on Twitter for additional information and follow now at Room Now for additional information for ACR 22. I'm Jonathan Kay from UMass Chan Medical School in Worcester, Massachusetts, here at ACR Convergence 2022, uh, reporting on a 
Abstract 1112 from the plenary session today. Hafsa Nabi from Copenhagen, Denmark, talked about switching biosimilar to biosimilar. Previous studies have looked at switching from reference product to biosimilar, but this is the first presentation about a switch between a biosimilar and another biosimilar. In this study, the DanBio registry was used, uh, where 1,605 patients had data that had been entered, uh, where patients with rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, and axial spinal arthritis who were on CTP13, biosimilar infliximab, were switched to uh, GP1111, uh, which is another biosimilar infliximab. They looked at those patients who were originator naive and those who were originator experienced and found that originator naive patients who were switched from biosimilar to biosimilar uh, had an 83% survival after one year on the biosimilar, whereas those who were originator experienced had a 92% survival on the biosimilar. Both of these were very good uh, retention rates, uh, but uh, the predictors of a lack of response would be higher disease activity, uh, not in DAS28 remission, higher CRP level, methotrexate use. So these are, these are uh, risk factors that would be expected to predict lack of response to any medication for rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, in this study, uh, they didn't look at factors such as nocebo effect or other biosimilar specific factors that might account for loss of response. But this is important information to gain experience understanding what happens when you switch from one biosimilar to another biosimilar. I look forward to additional studies that look in greater depth at the reasons for loss of response to a biosimilar after switching from another biosimilar. But this is encouraging, indicating that biosimilar use in Scandinavia is successful and in the United States we should see similar outcomes uh, among our patients. Uh, for more information about this and other studies, come to Room Now, and I'm Jonathan Kay. Hope to see you again soon. Hi, I'm Dr. Janet Pope. I'm here at Room Now at ACR 22 Convergence here in Philadelphia. I wanted to talk about the response of women versus men to treatment in seronegative arthritis looking at both psoriatic arthritis and axial spondylitis. So the first one is abstract number 1614. And with that, they looked at women with radiographic or non-radiographic axial spa and compared it to men. And they found something that to me is a bit confusing. They found that the response to any treatment in women was less only if they were non-radiographic, but it was equal if they were radiographic compared to men. And I don't think it's misclassification. These were large centers that know how to diagnose some um, ankylosing spondylitis. It didn't look like there were treatment differences, so I think more will come. And a lot of the treatment was with a TNF inhibitor, and maybe there's something about radiographic versus non-radiographic and TNF, but I don't really know. So the other one is looking, moving, and shifting gears to psoriatic arthritis. So it was um, 
abstract number 1601. And in this one, they actually were looking at a response to treatment with ustekinumab. So to remind everyone, it's an IL-1223 inhibitor. And it was looking as a sub-analysis of the randomized control trials in psoriatic arthritis. So the question was, if a man versus a woman is on methotrexate with ustekinumab, does it make a difference? And the weird thing is that if it was a man and he was on methotrexate and had ustekinumab, he actually had a better response than ustekinumab alone. Whereas in the women of the study, it made no difference. And they looked at all sorts of things, dactylitis, enthesitis, and other things. So again, is it a treatment response that's something to do with other cytokines, IL-1223, is it just a fluke because it's a subset analysis? I don't know, but I think, again, the take home for me as I go to clinic next week is I should be cognizant that there might be a difference in effect for women with seronegative types of arthritis on certain treatments compared to others. Otherwise, I don't really know what to make of it, and I think more will come on gender discrepancies. So thank you and enjoy the meeting.